On that note, let's take our Bible and turn to Psalm 46, if you haven't done so yet. Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. We have sung the word. We have heard a testimony about God's character and faithfulness. We're going to look into the word of God, hear the teaching of the word, and then we'll respond to it in prayer corporate prayer, church-wide prayer. I want to read all of Psalm 46, and then I'll pray, and then we'll look into it together. Psalm 46. It is a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth. That's a Hebrew word for actually a female choir, interestingly enough. It, It is a song. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. And then the conclusion is for the choir director. Let's pray. Great God, we know that you are the mighty fortress and the strong deliverer. You are the one who has revealed yourself so clearly and powerfully in the written word. And Father, you know exactly where each of us are tonight in this room. Some are going through afflictions. Some are going through deep temptation and very difficult trials, spiritually, relationally, physically, emotionally. Oh, Father, we pray that you would take this wonderful hymn and by the power of your Holy Spirit, who alone can apply it into the very specific parts of our hearts and our lives, we pray that you would minister your word as the perfect divine preacher tonight through the text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther wrote 36 hymns, and of course, the most famous one that he wrote is the one that we love. It's the one that we know. It's the one that we just sung, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote it in the year 1528. Actually, he not only wrote the words, but most historians believe that he actually wrote the tune as well. 
the music to this hymn. When times were tough, Luther was often known to have comforted his own heart with his own hymn that he wrote, and he would turn to his good friend, Philip Melanchthon, and he would say, Come, Philip, let's sing together the 46th Psalm. And then they would sing this wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If anybody knew what it was to go through hardship, Martin Luther might qualify. He knew what it was to be excommunicated. He knew what it was to be hounded. He knew what it was to be persecuted. He knew what it was to have his life on the line. Martin Luther wrote this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is really a celebration of the sovereign power of God over all earthly and spiritual forces, even of evil as well. Martin Luther wrote the hymn to show that he had a sure hope and that all believers have a sure hope because of Christ, our Lord, and our strong and our mighty Savior. I want you to look with me by way of introduction. I want to do a little word study with you. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge. Now, I want to tell you about this Hebrew word refuge. It's quite an amazing word. The word refuge is used literally in the Old Testament Bible for taking shelter in a rainstorm. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6, if someone is running and there's a rainstorm coming, they will often find shelter under a canopy over them. We have umbrellas to do that as well. Uh, Or there are people who would literally take shelter and refuge from danger in high hills, maybe, maybe in a fortress or in a castle or in something overhead. You would literally find a shade, a shelter, a protection in the high hills. But metaphorically, the word is often used in the Old Testament for trusting in something bigger than you. That's what the idea of refuge is. You're trusting in something bigger than you. Deuteronomy 32, verse 37, talks about finding refuge in a God. Or there are those who tried to find protection in Egypt. They tried to find refuge in the bigger world power of Egypt. But often the word was used in context of military, men of war who would be running to a strong rock where the helpless defender could quickly run for protection. Now, don't miss that. It's a time of war and you're in need and you are quickly running to an available place for protection. That's the idea that we draw here in Psalm 46. When Psalm 46 tells us that God is our refuge, the Hebrew word implies insecurity in ourselves. It implies inability in ourselves. It it implies self-helplessness, even of the strongest of men. We're weak. We, We can't produce any good in our own. We can't protect ourselves in our own. It implies inability of man. It implies the mercy of God, that God is available. It implies the availability of Christ as a mighty rock and a mighty shelter and a mighty anchor. Certainly implies the hostility of the forces of evil that come against the child of God, and there's plenty of them. And yet it also shows us the security that we have in the truth 
that God has revealed in his word. Listen to a couple of times where this word refuge occurs in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, David prays, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. At the end of David's song of praise, 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, David says, God is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Isn't that good to know that God is a shield to all who take refuge in him? Psalm 2, verse 12, how blessed, how happy are all who take refuge in the Messiah, the Son of God. Proverbs 14, 32, the righteous man has a refuge when he dies. Hallelujah for that. One more, Joel chapter 3, verse 16. I love the 316s. There's the John 316 and... Here's Joel 3.16. God is a refuge and a stronghold for his people. What a great verse from Joel 3.16. Well, we're going to learn about that tonight from our psalm. And we're going to learn that whatever hostility, whatever opposition, whether it's spiritual forces of evil, maybe it's persecutors for your faith, maybe it's all kinds of opposition that seems to be coming your way, adverse circumstances in your life, whatever the form of opposition might be, there is an available refuge. Way bigger than you, way bigger than me. And that refuge is none other than our mighty God. Psalm 46 is a hymn. It's a hymn. It's a song. And it was written, uh, commentators often call this psalm a song of confidence. When you're discouraged, you go here to find confidence. Not in yourself, (laughs) Not in your own abilities, but confidence in God. In God. God is the king and God in his global sovereignty. Bear with me for a minute. I want to walk through the flow of the psalm with you. Okay, so just kind of hear me out for a minute. Here's the flow of the psalm. Here's, Here's how the 11 verses work themselves out. First, the psalmist wants us to know that God is the refuge, that he is a strong and a mighty and a present and an unmovable refuge, even with all the disasters and troubles and threats that come your way from the world. Nothing, nothing can shake the man of God as he's leaning on God and hiding in God as his refuge. But then the psalm, the psalm goes to God as a river, God as a river, in the picture of a river. He's a, he's a satisfying, a present, a refreshing, a, a necessary gift to his people. No one can quench this river. No one can overpower this river. None can compare with the satisfying stream, and nothing can destroy what God provides. And then the psalm ends by telling us that God is the ruler. He is the ruler. He's the mighty king. He can stop all wars. He can break all bows. He can break all chariots. He can break all armies effortlessly. Therefore, the plea then at the end of the psalm is for all the enemies to stop their warfare against God. 
and to know that he alone is God, to wave the white flag of surrender and know that he alone is the Lord. And then there's an amazing little chorus that we're going to spend some time looking at tonight, that we are to have confidence in the Lord of hosts, for he is the king who is always with his people. So, in the Psalm of Confidence, what we want to do tonight is I want to walk through the three stanzas with you, and I want to, I want to beseech you, I want to preach the Word so that the Word will beseech all of us to trust in God your King at all times. Let me say it again. Trust in God your King at all times. Death, persecution, Affliction, loneliness, unmet expectations, all the things that may come our way in life, all of the threats that may come our way, we must trust in God our King. Look at the three stanzas. Number one, notice with me in your outline, you are safe with God. Just Christian, hear that. You're safe with God. You're safe with God from Satan. You're safe with God from all of the demons that could possibly come against you. You are safe with God. What verses 1 to 3 teach us is that this is a gloriously God-absorbed hymn. It begins with God. It ends with God. It's entirely saturated with God. God is our rock. And you know what? I find it interesting that God has this psalm in the times in which we're living for us to look at. With all of the crazy agitation of the world that is going on right now, God sits in heaven unmoved. He's unmoved. God is not biting his nails. He doesn't need his medication. God isn't trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. God is in control. Look at the declaration in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. And then it says at the end of verse 1, a very present help in trouble. That's a good try on the part of the English translator. Literally, it's God is a help, a mighty help, who's always findable. You can always find God. He's always findable. God's not hidden far from you. He's always findable. I love that. He is a refuge. He is a strength. Always, always able to be found. Verse 2. Well, if that's the case, look at verse 2. Therefore, What's the implication? Verse 2, therefore we will not fear. Pause. When you and I are afraid, guess what? When you and I are afraid, we're not finding God in that moment. When you and I are fearful, we're not hiding in the refuge of God. We're not clinging to the strength of God. When we're fearful, we have forgotten that God is an always findable refuge. But if we know that, therefore, we will not fear. Verse 2, we will not fear even though, check this out, even though the earth 
should change. And the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at the swelling pride. I mean, even though there is all these geological, cosmic, global earthquakes and mountains falling and waters roaring and tsunamis and the world falls into chaos, why would we fear? Even if the whole world comes crashing down, we have no reason to fear. It was uh, March 8th. The year was 1750. There was a big earthquake that overtook the city of London. John Wesley was living in this time. He got up the next day and he preached this text in the open air. Even if the earth shakes, and the mountains would fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear. We will not fear. Just a quick question. What, what about you? What about me? What about our lives? What troubles you? What plagues you? I mean, think of the worst physical phenomena. I mean, you think of an earthquake, you think of mountains falling, you think of waters roaring, you think of tidal waves and hurricanes. And is there ever a reason to really fear, according to this psalm? No, not at all. Not at all. We never need to fear with God as our fortress. So what do we do to take refuge in God? Just real practically, what do we do to to take refuge in Him? I think we have to know, to know this God. We have to know Him intimately. We have to keep His Word. We have to genuinely, daily, humbly, diligently obey His Word. And I think third, we must trust the incarnate Word. That Jesus is my Savior who knows me and loves me and cares for me and will protect me all the way through my life. You can rest assured, Christian, that you are safe with God. But look in your outline. Let me give you number two. You are satisfied with God. Christian, I want you to hear that. It's one thing to know that God is a mighty tower over you. It's another thing to know, wow, He satisfies my soul. Look, at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that God is described as an image here. A figure of speech is a satisfying river. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Well, I think literally it's the Gihon Spring. It's the one water source in the ancient city of Jerusalem and still there today as well. It's, it's the city uh, water supply, and that's what you needed in the ancient world. If you're going to survive in the city in the ancient times, you got to have a water source. Nowadays, too. Well, they had that in Jerusalem. It was the Gihon Spring. But this isn't just talking about a literal spring. This is far more than that. This is describing a plenteous, satisfying supply that God is and God gives to his people. Look at verse 4. It makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. The city will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. God raises his voice. The earth melts. But why fear? We have a river. Why fear? We have a satisfying, refreshing water. 
We have a river. Now, we can't miss. There are two allusions in the Bible to where this is leading. Okay, I want you to turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, real quick. Go to Genesis chapter 2. The first clear allusion to this river of water goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. It's the Garden of Eden. God creates man and he creates woman from man. And we learn in Genesis chapter 2 verse 10 that there's a river that flows out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divides and becomes into four rivers. The Pishon, and then the second river is the Gihon, and the third is the Tigris, and the fourth is the Euphrates. Why that? What's that all about? The picture is sustenance, refreshment, enjoyment, satisfaction, life. That's the idea of this river. This is what God has provided for the well-being and enjoyment of his people. Another clear allusion is also, if you want to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel chapter 47 is the second clear allusion here. Ezekiel 47 is in the context of the future millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign when Jesus returns to earth and he establishes his kingdom. Look at Ezekiel 47 verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. Verse 5, again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough to water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said, Son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me back to the bank of the river. When I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side, and on the other. How do we know this is literal and not spiritual? Look at verse 10. It will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi to Eniglime, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. The fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. What's the point? In the future millennial kingdom, in the thousand-year reign, when Jesus is on the earth ruling over all the world, there will be a river for satisfaction and refreshment and enjoyment that begins under the temple in the rebuilt kingdom in Jerusalem. Amazing. What Psalm 46 is doing is it's using language from the Hebrew Bible. It's using language from the Hebrew Bible that there is a picture of God's provision of life, of joy, of sustenance, of satisfaction, and it makes glad the city of God. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms roar, kingdoms rebel, kingdoms may ridicule. But verse 6 of our psalm, God is the one who raises his voice and everything melts. Are you satisfied in God today? Can you say that this rock has satisfied your soul? Can you say that this rock has quieted your heart from the affairs and troubles of this world? 
as it were, if you were living in Eden and there's that river that flows for enjoyment and refreshment or looking forward to the future kingdom and, and there's a river of enjoyment and refreshment and yet here's God describing his own power and presence as refreshment and enjoyment to the people of God. Be reminded, you'll never be satisfied in this world. Nothing in this world was made to satisfy you. And nothing can satisfy you. But God, only him. Third, look in your outline. Not only are you, number one, safe with God. Number two, you're satisfied in God. But then, number three, you are still before God. The psalm ends... And by the way, the division of the psalm is with the selahs there. See that? That's kind of the dividing point. That's the Hebrew word for pause and reflect on what we've just studied. Verse 8 tells us with two imperative commands, and it's a call to all of us, come and behold the works of the Lord. It's almost like God is saying through the psalmist, in these difficult times, Behold God. Behold Him. Consider Him. Gaze upon God. Be in awe of God. Be in awe of the power of God, of the works of God, of all the deeds of God. Maybe just a thought for all of us. When was the last time that you beheld the works of God? When was the last time that you beheld, not, not just a passing glance, but, but stand in awe. You're gazing at the works of God. In verse 8 tells us he wrought desolations in the earth. This is what our God does. He can destroy an Assyrian army with, with one angel. 185,000 Assyrians killed. He can flood the whole world by bringing rain. One day he will again by bringing fire. This is our God. This is our God that we're called to, to come and, and behold this God. He, he's the king. He's powerful. He's mighty. I think verse 9 leads us to the end times. Look at verse 9. This is what this God does. He makes wars to cease. To the ends of the earth, he breaks the bow, he cuts the spear in two, he burns the chariots with fire. Oh yes, God is far more powerful than any military, than Pharaoh and the Philistines and, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, of course. But one day, this great king will in fact end all warfare on this earth. And he will turn all swords into plowshares. But look at verse 10. There's two more commands. Be still and know that I am God. Now, you all know this verse, right? We probably know songs that have the word be still in it, right? In t-shirts, be still. It's actually not a command primarily to you and me. It's a command to the wicked rebels. Because the Hebrew verb means stop waging war. Why are you trying to wage war with the almighty God? You're not going to win. That's what the psalmist is saying. Stop striving with God. Stop striving. Stop quarreling with God. Stop rebelling against God. Be still and 
know that I am God. It's not so much a command for Christian, just be still, just sit there. That's not the point of the verse. It's a call for all the ungodly to stop their rebelling and surrender to the Lord. You know the glory of God. You see the greatness of God. Stop your mouth from arguing with God. Don't oppose God any longer. Just surrender. What a what a fitting word, by the way, for all who are here tonight. If there's even boys or girls, if there's men or women, and you're not truly trusting in Jesus alone. Here's what God says. Stop waging war with God. Stop. Stop quarreling with God. Stop rebelling against him. That's what the text says. Stop. Be still and surrender and know that he is God. He is king. He's in control. Rest in him. One of the greatest lies that is floating around our culture, sadly, I think, from many American evangelical churches, God helps those who help themselves. And that is a lie from hell. You don't, you don't need to help yourself. You don't need to trust in yourself. You don't need to believe in yourself. You can't accomplish things on your own. What we need to do is utterly surrender to the sovereign king. Totally surrender to him. He's the one that we need. He's the one that we must gaze upon. It's a wonderful psalm. I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the end is Selah, ponder. In your outline, I gave you four simple phrases at the end there. I want to drive home the refrain. You get the point of the psalm. You're safe in God. You're satisfied in God. We understand that we can be still and we can gaze upon God. We can be in awe of God. We can call unbelievers to stop their warfare with God. We get that. But have you realized in your reading and study of the psalm, there's actually a chorus here, kind of like a refrain. It occurs two times, and it's found in verse 7 and verse 11, and they're identical. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Let's focus on this together. You can trust in the Lord. You can rely upon him. Where does it all begin? Number one, you have to know the power of God. You know how Martin Luther said, the Lord of Sabaoth, Sabaoth. What's that? Well, that's the word Lord of hosts. And the word Lord of hosts tells us that there is nothing stronger, nothing mightier than our God. God cannot be outsmarted. He can't be outnumbered. He cannot be overpowered. The first time Lord of hosts appears in a prayer is uttered by Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She refers to God as the king, the great king, the king who created all the armies of heaven and on earth. 
when you and I refer to God as the Lord of hosts, you know what you're saying? My God is the heavenly commander of all of the armies of heaven. I mean, bring the innumerable multitudes of angels, that the millions and the millions of these powerful creatures, God is the commander of all of them, the Lord of hosts. Back to our psalm. This Lord of hosts is with us. It's this God. I mean, why fear? What's what's an army going to do? What's a threat going to do? What's a terrorist going to do? What's a bomb going to do that could take us away from the Lord of hosts? The power of God. Notice number two in your outline, the presence of God. This mighty Lord of hosts is with us. And don't forget what Paul says in Romans. He's with you. He's for you. If if God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, God is with you. He is near to you. He has a relationship with you in Christ. You can say, my God in the person of Christ dwells in me and he's with me and he will never leave me. Third, not only the power of God and the presence of God, but third, notice the protection of God. Do you see at the end of verse 7 and 11, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. It's related to the word refuge, but a little bit different. It's the idea of God in a really, really, really high place. You know, you go to perhaps Europe or Scotland or one of the places where you've got these old castles, right? And you go to the top of the hill and there's this castle on the top of the hill and these these tall walls and impenetrable high fortress that's the idea here that god is our stronghold you know that god always has a plan he guards your soul he leads you safe to heaven he protects you in christ he is your stronghold and then finally you have the promise of god Where do we see the promise of God? Well, he's called the God of of Jacob. Why the God of Jacob? Well, because in Exodus chapter 3, when God summons Moses at the burning bush, he describes himself, I am the God of Jacob. I am the covenant-making God. I am the covenant-keeping God. All of my covenants, all of my promises are yes and amen in Christ. Jesus. Jesus affirmed that our God is alive. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Mark 12. This is the chorus. Hear it again in verse 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. When you're fearful, when you're anxious, when you're threatened, when you're bullied, when you're uncertain of the future, when you feel like the world is crashing in and you don't know where to go, Go back to the chorus. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our stronghold. This is the hope for the Christian. This is the refuge that you and I have. But as I close, if any unbeliever is here tonight, 
you have no refuge apart from Christ. I mean, man, you, 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 could run, you could run to the highest mountain. You could go into the deepest cave. And you'll never, ever find refuge from the wrath of the Lamb. Never. There's never, ever, ever refuge anywhere outside of Christ. But guess what? The refuge is available in Christ, right? You look to him, you trust in him, you cry out to him, you acknowledge your sin, you believe upon him, you humbly come before his cross and you acknowledge his mighty power and he'll save you. He'll save you. He is a mighty and an available and a gracious refuge to all who come to him. It was on the day that John Wesley died. He was a weak man, very, very weak. His voice was nearly all gone. He had preached thousands of sermons, many of them in the open air and many of them in the cold and snow and rain outdoors in England. On his deathbed, someone leaned down to him and it was his final words that he would ever utter. And he said, the best news of all is that God is with us. That's the best of all. That God is with us. May that be the truth from this psalm that carries us all the way through life, even to our deathbed until we graduate to glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the power that we have in this mighty refuge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the Lord of hosts and he is always with us. What a towering fortress, a mighty stronghold, a sufficient rock and redeemer that you are to all who call upon you. Lord God, Fortify us, prepare us, embolden us, give us courage, help us to be fit and ready soldiers for battle as we have and hold and remember this psalm in our hearts. In Jesus' name.